Hebrews chapter 2, starting from verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that there is such a thing called union with Christ. It is not what uh, humans made up. In fact, it's not something that we would invent uh, such a, a glorious mystery that it is that we can be joined to you through being joined with your Son. That there is a real, organic, vital, true union that we can share uh, with our Creator, with, with our Savior. That the benefits that we receive from who Christ is and what He has done for us is not outside of us, uh, but inside of us and inside of Him as we find ourselves in Him. And so we pray, Father, you help us understand what faith is. You help us understand what it means to be joined to Christ. And you help us to see the glory and the beauty and the wonder that that is. This morning, as we look into this topic of the incarnation of, of, of the Son of God being made flesh, help us to understand how this uh, mystery uh, is explained to us and showed to us in the Bible and how glorious it is for us that your Son became flesh. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure about uh, you guys, when you were young, whether you did this. You got yourself a daisy, and then you plucked up the petals. He loves me, he loves me not, or she loves me, she loves me not. I think I came across uh, this for the first time in Charlie Brown. If anyone uh, ever uh, read those comics, uh, he would wonder whether Lucy loved him. And then sometimes, she most of the time, she didn't love him, did she? She was so mean to him. But he still thought, you know, he loves, she loves me, she loves me not. Now, when it comes to our Christian faith and our experience with God, sometimes there is a, a similar kind of experience with God, isn't it? Uh, he loves me, he loves me not. He's near me, 
He is near me not. It really can describe our experience of God. You know, we, we, we think of a scene like this. And in a way, this scene captures both that, that nearness. When you go to, to the majestic sea or on top of a mountain, you feel the nearness of God. But when you consider the vastness of his creation and the, the distance, he seems so far away at the same time. The one scene, when you feel close, you also feel like he's so far away. We humans have always felt a sense of God's presence. In every culture of human history, there is an innate, innate awareness of a higher being, and that awareness has driven religion and worship over all time. Transcendence, right? The belief that there's something greater and more resides in the heart of humanity. The belief and hope that there is something more. And so prayer is one of the most common human experiences. Religious people, irreligious people, at times, everyone prays. Everyone prays. Especially for guidance and especially for help. We call out to God to give it. So there's a sense that God is present, that God is near, yet He's near me not, right? He seems so far away. We sense that God is there, but the reality of the distance, of the disconnection is naggingly present even for the most religious, even for the most spiritual. As near as God can seem to be, the reality we have to come to terms with is that God is indeed an infinitely higher being. He's eternal and divine. We are finite and mortal. He is holy, 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 dwelling in inaccessible light and purity. We are stained and corrupt by sin and guilt. And so we wonder, even if God is near, does he really care? And will he really help people like us? Is that distance too great? Does he really understand what I'm going through? What would the God of the universe of eternity care about whether I choose to eat fried chicken or eat a healthy salad? Right? Whether I do my homework or not. How I fill up my tax returns. Why would God care? for such mundane, boring life, stuff like this. Now, we continue on today in our Union with Christ series, and today we come to the topic of the Incarnation. Now, if you remember from last week, Union with Christ is simply to be in Christ and Christ to be in us. That's what this doctrine is, right? To be united with Christ is to be in Christ and to have Christ in us. And we heard last week that nothing of who Christ is and nothing that Christ does is of any benefit to us unless we're united with Christ. He is not the Savior. He is not the King. He is not anything outside of us unless He is in us. Now, the incarnation is a, a crucial starting point to understanding how this can be the case. The incarnation is the Son of God taking on human flesh, uniting His divine nature with our human nature. Right, the incarnation is the, the divine Son of God taking on human flesh, uniting His divine nature with our human nature. The incarnation means that we mortals can actually be united to the divine. It means that sinners can actually and really be saved. And it also means that we have a God that truly and deeply and totally understands us and is able to help us in our entire human experience. That's what the incarnation does, right? Connects us to God 
actually saves and shows that God knows, cares, and can help. That's what the incarnation shows. It fulfills our human longing for connection with God. Now let's get into it. As I mentioned last week, and I want to remind us again this week, the teaching of union with Christ is at the end of the day a mystery that will never be fully fathomable. Okay, And we need to glory in that, that what God does in this doctrine is really that wonderful and amazing, and we won't fully get it. But as we've learned last week, we will be able to get enough that can really blow our minds and warm our hearts. Now, if you only ever allow for, for a very narrow and a very skeptical version of truth, limited by human rationality and scientific explanation, then not only will you never appreciate the very real spiritualities of life, I believe that you won't really experience life at all. Right? So if you come here today and, and you're a bit close-minded and you're very skeptical about anything that's to do with spiritual things or, or the miraculous or the divine, then you're missing out on life. But more importantly today, you'll be missing out on a spiritual truth that really is true. Now the incarnation is not some fairy tale story. It's built on the historical fact of a baby born into this world in the first century. Around about AD 4, which is about 2015 years ago, a child was born into this world named Jesus in a real place called Bethlehem. No historian worth their degree ever disputes that there is a child called Jesus born who lived on this world. Billions know this child and millions, maybe even billions, worship this child as God. Why? Because the scriptures report that this child is no ordinary child. An angel had come to his mother and said in Luke chapter 1, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. A couple of verses later, and the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. A human child born from a mother, human mother, the Son of God. That's what Luke, Luke 1 says, right? Now, this is what the Apostle John came to understand about Jesus after he'd observed all of Jesus' life. This is what he concluded about Jesus the man that he knew. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is the Apostle John who had followed Jesus for about three or four years of his life and having witnessed all of his human life, including his, his eating and his, his drinking and his sleeping and his walking and his catching a boat across the rivers and his suffering and his death and also, of course, the countless miraculous signs, the greatest of which was Jesus' resurrection, John concluded that the Word of God, the Word Himself, God Himself, became a man and took on flesh. Fully God and fully man. This is the testimony of Scripture, isn't it? This is the claim that the Bible makes. Jesus, the man of history, 
is fully God and fully man. In the one person, fully God and fully man. Now understand what the Bible does not say. Right? Understand what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that God became a man and stopped being God. He didn't become a man and stopped being God. It doesn't say that God became a kind of man. Right? A, a quasi-man, a man on the surface, but not really a man. Neither of those things are true. He is fully man and fully God. Colossians 2 says this very sharp, very this, uh, a pithy statement, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of the divine dwells in a whole human. Jesus was truly God and truly man at the same time. It was when he was alive, and it still is, if you understand scriptures in his resurrection, still a man and still fully God. Now, at this point in time, we could do a doctrine uh, lecture on the hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ. It just means that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Right? I can show you all the scriptures and all the doctrine and all the church history thinking about this and all the creeds that humans have come up with to explain this, but I won't go down that path. Instead, I want to take another approach. I want us to just fully appreciate how much God has truly entered our human experience because he is fully God and fully man. I want to show you how full Jesus really is, man. Now let's spend some time thinking about this because the Bible doesn't give a lot of airtime to Jesus' life before he became, uh, before he began his ministry at the age of 30. Um, but we're given a few glimpses of Jesus before the age of 30 in his uh, kind of his growing up. Now he was born, as we know, uh, as I saw before you before, um, as an underprivileged baby in the Middle East. Uh, and unlike what some Christmas carols say, be very sure that the baby Jesus cried, right, and then he slept, and then he cried, and then he slept all within one hour sometimes. Okay, just like any other normal human baby. And, and he ate, and then he pooped, and then he ate, and then he pooped, just like any other human baby. Okay, I mean, it's, it's sacrilegious to say that Jesus pooped. Okay, but he did, because he was a baby, wasn't he? And then we know later on that his family were refugees in Egypt because there was a murderous king who was killing babies, right? And so they fled. And, and the baby Jesus was carried along in swaddling cloths, probably on some kind of carrier. And he didn't do any saving. He didn't do any delivering. He didn't do any divine stuff. He just got, he just, as a refugee, as a human refugee, like everyone else at the time. And then we're told this verse, chapter, Luke 2, verse 40. And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Now, if you're reading Luke chapter 2, you'll read this verse and you just skip right along without any second thought. But it says something profound about just how normal Jesus was. Like any normal boy, he got taller and he got heavier and he got stronger. He grew and he grew stronger. He became physically stronger, meaning that he was once weak. He grew wiser, meaning that once he didn't know stuff, he had to learn. And we hear that every year the, the boy Jesus would journey to Jerusalem. Pretty famous story. The only story from when he was young, right? Uh, when he was about 12. Sorry, how do I turn this off? So, okay. We hear that Jesus, uh, we're told that he would go to Jerusalem every year uh, to be with his family to celebrate the feast of the Passover. 
And one time he got left behind the temple and his parents got worried about him. And then we discovered later on that he got a bit of an interaction with his parents, but he eventually submitted to his parents' decisions and instructions. And then we find out that when he grew up, he became a carpenter. Now, the Bible doesn't say much more than this about Jesus growing up years, but it's enough for us to see that he's a normal human baby who grew up to be a normal human child, who grew up to be a normal human man. And we can cautiously but rightly fill in the gaps to see that he would have experienced all the things that we would experience or we have experienced growing up having to listen and, and obey his parents' instructions and teachings. We see the evidence of that. Doing the chores, getting along with his siblings, making friends, going to school, learning a trade, managing a household, and dealing with all the messiness that is part and parcel of the human experience. He wasn't some glowing child who, who floated on clouds everywhere, where people bowed down and worshipped. No. He experienced the things that we experience. Jesus was human dealing with weakness and strength, feeling joy and pain, experiencing goodness and kindness, as well as wickedness and cruelty. He had to learn, to grow, to think, to consider, to make decisions, to resist temptation and overcome trials. Normal human stuff, because Jesus was fully man, a real person like you and I. Now, what we don't have to fill in it's the gaps when Jesus does finally begin his ministry. So let's jump forward to when Jesus is about 30 years old. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And so this is kind of kicks off Jesus' ministry, right? He begins by going out to the Jordan River to be baptized just like everyone else by John the Baptist, who was preparing people to receive the kingdom of God. And here we see, uh, and we are clearly reminded of, in no uncertain terms, that this man Jesus was no special, there's no ordinary man, right? Because a voice from heaven says, You are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Anyone ever had that in your baptism? You know, I actually thought that maybe something might happen for me in my baptism. There's something, you know, spectacular would happen in the heavens, but nothing happened. I'm just normal. But Jesus, right, clearly, he is normal human being, but he's not normal human being. He is also the Son of God. Now, with this kind of heavenly pronouncement, you would think that Jesus would now go into full God mode, right? All this normal human stuff for 30 years, done. Full God mode is about to begin. But... We don't see that, do we? It's not like suddenly at his baptism, he, he, he stops his uh, humanness and he takes a back seat because the God part is now out to play. We don't see that at all. Now, Jesus began his ministry by going to the wilderness. The first thing he does after getting baptized and his heavenly pronouncement is he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, to be tempted in his humanity. Because he goes out there for 40 days without food, without drink. He's hungry and thirsty. God doesn't get hungry and thirsty, but the man, Jesus, does. He is tempted by Satan to use his divine power to fix everything. But Jesus chose to stay the course as a human. He chose to stay the course as a human. 
And from then on, three more years of traveling on foot, by boat, on donkeys, teaching, facing opposition and persecution. And finally, he's tortured and killed on a cross. Now, no doubt, in his ministry, he revealed very clearly and powerfully and awesomely and unforgettably that he is God. But we're never allowed to forget that he is God become man. We're never allowed to forget that he is fully God and fully man. No more so than when he was crucified on that Roman cross. Now, God took on flesh, not just to have a temporary, short-term kind of taste test of being human, but keeping, but keeping you know, humanity at a, at a distance. He didn't do that. It's not like, say, you and I, you, know, you go to a, a very filthy toilet, maybe somewhere in Asia, because Australian toilets are very nice, right? But maybe somewhere in Asia, maybe in Malaysia, like my, my children, we went to Malaysia, uh, some of the toilets were really bad, right? By their standards, okay? And then what you do when you go into a toilet like that, you kind of like, you don't want to touch anything, right? And then you put tissues all on the toilet seat, and then when you turn on the tap, you use your elbows, and then you use your bottom to push open the door, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? You, you try and keep a distance, and then the moment you can get out, as soon as you can, you get out of there. And God didn't do that with his humanity, right? He didn't do that. He united fully with our humanity, with all of that muck. It wasn't like he entered a clean toilet. For this world is dirtier and worse than any Malaysian toilet you can ever go into. Sorry, Malaysians. Um, <laughs> the Chinese toilets are pretty bad too. I've been to Shenzhen once. And the uh, Singaporean toilets. Okay, anyway, equal opportunity, bad toilets, right? Because the world is a disgusting place, and yet God united fully in his humanity with us. He experienced the full human condition. He joined permanently with our humanity. Having become human, the Son of God remains human forever. We're told very clearly in Hebrews, in chapter 2, which we'll look at later on, he remains the human high priest in the heavenly places. The implications for this are absolutely massive. They are so, so good, what I'm going to say at the end of the sermon. But before we get to that, let me say one more thing about Jesus' humanity. God became one of us perfectly. He didn't just become one of us fully, but he became one of us perfectly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, the Son of Man came to be one of us perfectly to show that being truly human was possible. Now, when we think of being human, we say things like, to err is human, right? We, we assume that being human means to be weak and sinful and rebellious. But that is not true. For God did not create for us to be imperfect and to be erring and sinning. Now, for us, we have never known what it's like not to sin. It's a totally foreign concept to us. But Jesus came to show that being truly human is actually a life of total trust and obedience to God. That being human is a life of total trust and obedience to God. This is what it means to be without sin. Sin is saying to God that he can't be trusted to rule over our lives as our creator. Sin is saying, I don't know if I can trust you, God. I've got to do things my own way. Sin is saying, I'm not sure if I should obey you, God, 
because I'm not sure that what you want for me is the best. Or what you want for me is withholding what I want to do, so I will go and obey, disobey you and do my own thing. But Jesus, having become human, entered into the full human experience. And by that we mean that he experienced all of the opportunities and reasons, all of the situations and circumstances that would lure us moment by moment, day after day, to sin against God. Moment by moment, to say no to trusting God, to say no to God's instructions. Jesus faced them all, but he did not sin. For every moment of every opportunity to turn away from God in mistrust, distrust, unbelief, and disobedience, Jesus said no. He trusted his Father, and he obeyed his Father perfectly. Now, why is all this important? Why is all this important? Three implications that I want to draw. Why is this important? Now, let's think about the connection issue, right? The problem we have with God. Now, let's think about a few analogies. I spent a lot of time this week thinking about how would we try to explain an analogy of being connected or disconnected from God. Perhaps we would think about a disconnection between species, right, like humans and fish. Okay, somehow you want to connect with, uh, with a different species. And so we would say, well, the solution is Aquaman, right, or mermaid, right? So we, we need a little princess or we need Aquaman to, to be that human fish person, right, to be able to help bridge that gap between a human and a fish. But it sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? No good. Or maybe it's like two people speaking totally different languages. Uh, and what we need to be able to communicate and bridge that gap is an interpreter, someone who knows language A and, and language B to be able to bridge that gap. But you know, I try to think of many variations of analogies and they all just seem so woefully weak and insufficient. Because the gap between man and fish and between foreign language people are not even remotely close to being far enough apart to describe the relationship between man and God. Remember, he is eternal, divine, holy, 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 almighty and sovereign over all, outside of time and space, and we are, well, we are we. Mortal, finite, weak, rebellious, limited, corrupt, guilty. The gap is far greater than any analogy could ever capture. And the solution of these analogies of an aquaman or a mermaid or an interpreter as a go-between is far too weak and pointless. What connection can these kind of mediators secure? So what if there is an aquaman? There is no real connection to a fish through this man, through this mediator. And so what if we can understand each other's languages? I mean, we only be able to understand the things that this person can interpret and for that moment of conversation. But there is no real connection between me and another person. And what happens when the interpreter is not around? It's not like you're going to live in an interpreter your whole life. There is no real and meaningful and long-lasting connection that results with these kind of external mediators that can only mediate part of the gap that creates real connection, or that, that, that doesn't allow for real connection. But the incarnation is God's infinitely wise and exceptionally brilliant solution. Infinitely wise and exceptionally brilliant solution. Because God unites himself to humanity. 
He didn't become some quasi-human. He became fully human. He actually became one of us. The one who is both fully God and fully man in the one person. God's plan and purpose is for us to be united to the incarnate God. And so this is what happens. Jesus, who is fully man and fully God, what happens when we find ourselves in Him? When we find ourselves in Him? Well, like for like, we who are human are connected to Jesus' humanity. There is no gap to cross here. There is no temporary time where we are connected and not connected. We're in Him. We're in His humanity fully. And Jesus, being fully God, like for like, is one with God the Father, fully. And because He's together, the one person always, this is what Colossians 2 verse 9 and 10 says, For in Him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. We saw that before, but I didn't read the rest of the verse. And you and I have been filled in Him. You and I have been filled in Him. The, the, the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus, fully man, fully God, and we're in Him. What does that then mean about how we're connected to God? We're connected to Jesus. Our connection to God is surely secured. And in this connection, there is no gap. There is no distance. Just as God and man are connected seamlessly in Jesus, so then we who are connected to Jesus are connected to God seamlessly, perfectly, eternally. Now, you know, I don't feel that. This is why we need to learn this spiritual reality. Jesus prayed for us once, as we heard this last week, that we will be one with the Father and the Son, just as the Father and the Son are one. Remember that from last week? Jesus prayed for us that we will be one with the Father and the Son, just as the Father and the Son are one. The incarnation is what makes this possible. All the facts in our head and all the experience of our life may tell us that we are so far away from God that we're not connected. But you need to understand that in the course of the, the incarnation, the connection we have with God is, is phenomenal. You may not feel it, but you've got to tell yourself, you have this connection in Christ. You're as connected to the Father as the Son is connected to the Father. And in Christ, you will always be. You're as connected to the Father as the Son is connected to the Father. And in Christ, this is what you will always be. Now, tied ever so closely to the incarnate Jesus being our connection to God is Jesus being our salvation. Now, this is where you've got to pull out your Bibles. So for those of you who need to do something because you're already falling asleep, uh, now's the time, right, to flip open your Bibles or to turn on your phone, which hopefully won't pop up with your latest Instagram notification or whatever it is that pops up. Because we're going to look at Hebrews 2 very quickly to finish these final two implications of the sermon. Hebrews 2, reading from verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, 
but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a powerful, sorry, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, next week, and this is like a preview of next week, we're going to look at the issue of salvation and justification uh, for the entire sermon. Uh, but I want to just show you this for now, that the, the reason we can be saved is grounded in the fact that Jesus took on flesh and blood. Now, we sin as human beings, and our human death, our forfeit of the life that God gives us is the punishment that is the just deserve punishment for turning our backs on God. Jesus became human, made like us in every aspect, and as a human, he did not sin. I want to remind us again, right, of the experience of not sinning as a human. Think about all the temptations that Jesus faced to turn away from trusting God and to disobey God. I want you to consider the greatest temptation of them all, which is in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prepares himself for the cross. Now, we, we often think, Jesus, did he suffer from lust and did he like any girls? We're not sure. We don't want to go into those speculations. And we wonder whether he was a greedy boy, right, who wanted an extra piece of cake. And maybe, you know, we don't want to go into that kind of line of thinking too much. And we think, maybe... You know, Jesus wasn't married. He wouldn't have the temptation of being unfaithful to his wife. Right? He didn't have children, so he didn't have the temptation of yelling at his kids like we do. And so we think, maybe he doesn't really know what it means to be tempted in the way we are. And so his perfection seems kind of fake, not very great. But let me suggest to you that the reason why we can say that Jesus was tempted beyond anything that we have ever faced, is considered the cross. It's considered that, that sin is about saying no to God and yes to self. And think about the cross. What is he saying yes to as he goes to the cross? What he's saying yes to is that I will willingly and lovingly obey your mission to take on myself the sins of all human beings. I'm not sure about you guys, but when we are faced with the temptation to even just take the, the sins of one colleague, we would lie through our teeth to get out of that situation. We would, do, we would sin for far less reasons. We would turn our backs on God for far less reasons than what Jesus did as he faced the temptation of saying no to God and taking on the sins of the entire world. He faced the greatest temptation of them all, having to trust his father by going to the cross to bear the sins of the entire world. There is no greater temptation to say no to God than this. And with tears and with, and with, 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 with perspiration of blood, with the kind of anguish of having to say yes, Jesus said yes, having faced the greatest temptation to say no, that you and I can only imagine finding ourselves in. If that hasn't sunk in for you, then let it sink in. If you ever consider that Jesus really wasn't ever tempted to turn his back on his father and look to the cross and what he had to say yes to, 
as he let himself be put on that cross. Yet Jesus did not sin. As the perfect sinless man, he was qualified to take our place. As the infinite son of God, the value of his death is sufficient to pay for all who trust in him. Jesus, fully God and fully man, perfect in obedience, then becomes our salvation. Do you know this? Do you believe this? Do you know what it took for Jesus to save you? It took for him to be the perfect man. And that is impossible. But he did the impossible. And final point I want to draw today is summarized in this last verse in chapter two, uh, chapter 2 of Hebrews. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You know, if you're ever tempted, if you ever thought that God is too far away, well, now you know that he's not. And if you ever assume that God doesn't care or can't understand, you must know now that he does. He truly does because Jesus, the Son of God, experienced our humanity fully. Right? No threat that you ever face, no temptation you will ever face will ever match up to the one that Jesus faced. Right? He may not have experienced exactly the same kind of scenario, but he's been tempted to the greatest degree that we would ever face. And so trust him when he says that he's able to help. He knows what it's like to be tempted to the very end point and yet not fall. And so it doesn't matter what we face. Whether it's a a small temptation to greed, like like eating an extra piece of cake, or to to say a lie to our parents, or to to cheat on our tax returns, or or to harbor anger and and, and bitterness against someone because of what they've done against us, all the temptations... To, to say that we don't really trust you, God, and we want to not obey you, God, because I know better, because what I want to do is more important. All these temptations, Jesus can and does and will help you if you let him. If you haven't gone to Jesus because you're not sure that he can help you, then God's word to us this morning is, yes, he can. Yes, he can. And it's not the Jesus out there who can help us. It's the Jesus within. It is because we are in Him. To know that we are connected with God inseparably. To know that He cares. And to know that He can help. So will we draw near to God? Will we trust in His care for us? And will we ask for and receive His help? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can continue to explore the mystery and the wonder that is being united with Christ. We thank you that in your word, you reveal to us mysteries sometimes beyond even what our minds can bear. And yet these unfathomable truths, you're revealed to us by your spirit, that you are amazing us and wowing us and causing us to marvel and wonder at the wisdom of your ways. We thank you that we're able to think about the incarnation the mystery that the eternal divine Son of God became a man, that somehow in the one being he can be fully God and fully man. But more importantly than just marveling at the doctrine is to marvel at the impact, the effect, the implications of his joining with flesh. This means that that wondering we have about whether we can truly be connected to you 
where there's, we have to live a life of, of feeling your closeness, yet feeling your distance, that has been solved. We have been eternally united with you in Christ. We cannot be separated. There is no gap. If we've ever wondered whether you truly care for us in our smallness, in our brokenness, in Jesus' humanity, in his full experience, help us to see that you, help us trust that you do indeed truly care. And help us to see that Jesus, he helps us. He can and he does because he's experienced temptation to the greatest degree that we will ever face. And so no matter what temptation that we feel that we have to battle against to not trust you, to disobey you, we know that Jesus is able to help. So help us to seek for his help. Help us to receive his help. This we pray so that you help us to fully experience what it means to live as your children created by you, united in Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen.